Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Built on Hope, a podcast all about Imperial Assault. So today, I am your host, Jessica, and I am here with... David. And we are going to be joined by Derek Martin, who is a member of the Steering Committee, and Alistair Scott, two-time UK national champ. In this episode, we cover uh, what's in the current meta and what is the future looking like. All right, so some news for you before we get started into this really deep dive into meta. First of all, we have a new tabletop simulator mod that has been updated, and so you can now paste the Tabletop Admiral link into a tool on the table to spawn your army really, really quickly. I will have a link in the show notes. For IACP, Noah has started a TV Boys Designer Diary series on the IA Continuity Project website, which is pretty cool, so check that out. And also with IACP, there has been a online play questionnaire that was kind of spurred by a discussion that we had in our previous episode about organized play formats. So definitely check out that questionnaire and have your opinion heard about what format you would like to have IACP use when they are doing organized play events moving into the future. Especially, how does IACP approved work? How are we going to be using that versus the testing league? So that'll be really interesting to get everyone's opinion on that one. Talking about organized play, we just had this past weekend the ICP Season 3 Celebration Tournament. And David and I were providing commentary on the IA Command stream, but if you missed it on the day, you can catch the recording on the IA Command YouTube, and you can check out the full tournament results on the IACP website. So I'll, again, put the links in the show notes to that. We also caught Derek and Ryan in their top four game. Ryan managed to beat Derek's tank list with his force user combo with Yoda in it. And you can catch us next weekend, which is on Saturday, the 23rd of May. That'll be at 9 a.m. Eastern. Or if you are over here in the UK, it will be 2 p.m. British summertime for the second top four match, which is Tyler playing a Boba Fett scum list versus Tuca playing a smug force user rebel list. So definitely catch us then. Let's get started with our discussion of the meta. All right. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Built on Hope. And we've got part two of the knowledge and defense meta discussion for you today. So Isaac is away and I will be your host, David Gap. I'm here with Jessica. Hello. And this week, we've got two amazing guest stars for you. So the first is actually Derek, who is somehow representing the North America region. Hello. Hey, Derek. Want to just introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about your involvement in IA and IACP. Sure, yeah. I started playing IA, it wasn't that long ago. It was like the 2018 uh, regional season. It was when I started playing, right when Thrawn and all those figures started coming out. And uh, that was, yeah, I, I had the game for a couple of years and like had played once or twice, but it was one of those things where if you view it as a board game, it kind of takes a bit of investment of time and it's like convincing people to play Risk. Yeah, <laughs> very cool. Did you play a lot of campaign before you started on Skirmish? No, actually. Skirmish appealed to me way more. I was coming from uh, like playing Warhammer Fantasy before that. 
So it was kind of like it kind of appealed to that side of the th of the whole thing for me. So I really wanted to play skirmish, but I had to get people to play with me, and that was hard to find. So then uh, I started looking up if there were groups around that played, and I realized that yeah, there was a, a group at my local game store, and I convinced my best friend to join in with me and buy the corset as well, and we started going and playing together. And there was like five of us at the time or something who showed up once a month to play. That was pretty cool. Nice. Yeah, and then I ended up winning my first regional, which I thought was really surprising at the time, running an IG list. Nice. Yeah. And then took the ticket to Worlds, decided to try it out, went three and three, I think, that year, um, running double weekways and losing to Spectre Cell all the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, was that the, that was the Spectre Cell year then where we were yeah. all there as well? Yeah, it was kind of like Spectre Cell existed when I started, but people weren't, hadn't figured out that it was so OP yet. So sometimes people ran it, but they hadn't really figured out all the tricks and everything. So there was one Spectre Cell at our regionals and one guy who decided not to run Spectre Cell because he felt like it was jumping on a bandwagon and like he didn't want to be that guy. Right. And then, but yeah, by the time we got to Worlds, it was like pretty oppressive and stuff. So I ran double weekways and enjoyed that. Interesting. Yeah. So you, you kind of hopped in right when there was very, stifling meta and even some negative stigma yeah although although really I, I didn't notice it locally it wasn't until i started i joined like online like talking to people on slack and stuff like that that's when i started to notice it right yeah so you're also very involved in iacp now yeah that's right i joined the steering committee it's been a lot of fun it's been a really great way to get in a lot of uh playing imperial assaults actually just with all the play testing and everything so that's been that's been a ton of fun cool so we'll, we'll definitely pick your brain a bit and have some interesting IACP discussions at the end. So our second guest star is Alistair, who is representing the UK and Europe. I feel a little bit like the, you know, the old, the old pro, the, you know, the retired from back from the game was, you know, in the, in the old league. But yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, it's good to be here. Good to be chatting with it again. And even just as we were warming up for this call, uh, I think I told you I was wondering if I was going to have much to say and, just hearing Derek talk, I kind of think, oh yeah, I got lots of things about that, and lots of things about that that time, and and the meta, and and even the meta that's going on, you know, right now while we're recording this. There's actually is, uh, there are people discovering this game. There are people who want this kind of this uh, this kind of chat, and even in circumstances like now, they want to know about the campaign game. They want to know about skirmish. Definitely. I mean, you're not you're not so retired. You're probably <laughs> one of the most recent regional winners on the planet because you won one right before the whole uh, pandemic yeah. situation. It's what, definitely one of those uh, blind squirrel finding nuts systems because one of the things is I do t tend to get to every or I did get to every in person event that I could in the UK, which I, th I think on a on a global scale just was remarkably generous in terms of the shops we have and the the amount of regionals you could get to i, I certainly had a few wins by virtue of, of going to enough until i could find one i could squeeze through i've always got a lot of admiration for people who show up to their local shop and actually can can crack through um, i usually takes me about two three goes i'm super jealous yeah <laughs> it, it was something that I, I hope turns in its own style but yeah the uk uh, both getting around it and seeing different people different shops there's really good community uh, it kind of just a microcosm 
microcosm of what you get, I think, in North America and Canada, just a lot closer together. You know, it's a little bit less of a journey to go from one game shop's meta to another game shop's meta. I always started playing when Hoth came out because I had played campaign with my friend a little bit. And actually, I love campaign now, but at the time, I kind of thought, okay, I, I, I get it, but really didn't really hit me. But uh, the very first skirmish we played was my friend Andy wanted to try something. He's like, oh, this new stuff's come out. You know, some wampas and some some and <laughs> things. And I was like, oh, let's give it a shot. And I just played that first that first Iggy mission with the laser. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. And I, I started like making all these spreadsheets and coming up with different lists, all of which hilarious now because they all involved like the tank or Soren <laughs> stuff that frankly, anybody who had since then would be like, no, no, it's not going to work. But you know, with Spectre Cell being the bookend to the game along with 4x4, which was the thing I just missed. So a lot of people right at the start had come to the game and thought, uh-oh, this is going to be one of those. I need four core sets so I can play two units that aren't really iconic and it's not going to be that game. And then, so I joined right after that had sort of been decisively broken and got to see the game through to another period where it had to push through a kind of a powerful anti-meta, at least at least anti-creative meta list. I've been playing for a long time and was just playing a skirmish game with my lovely partner yesterday night. And the game is, I've been play, I have played so many hours this game and I'm still enjoying it, finding new things in it to enjoy. Excellent. Well, a lot, a lot of those old units are fantastic in IACP now sure too. <laughs> so in since this is a two-part episode, there may be some viewers that need a little bit of a recap. Basically, what we're talking about in terms of a meta is two definitions, right? The first is this acronym where meta stands for the most effective tactics available. Basically, the best way of winning an Imperial Assault skirmish game. A second definition that we're really concerned about is metagaming, more how you play a game about the the game that's not actually using the miniatures on the board. So this this is more related to building your list to counter what you might expect to see at a tournament rather than what you think is just the strongest list. So the the first question I think I'd like to ask the two of you is that what, in your opinion, is actually the current most effective tactics available in Imperial Assault? How do you think the best way to win the game is? If I, if I was to say from what I've seen and what I've played, and even just some recent tournament performance and play from different metas, and even different formats of the game, is that it's a game that people are really emotional about. They like characters. They like drama and cards. But if you strip that back, it's a game about mitigating risk. And it, one thing that seems to have been always true in the game is that the more control you have over the board, your rolls, your draw, the more likely you are to be able to win the game. Well, come to you know maps and things which is another factor in the meta but it feels to me that the reason there was a return towards scum and and weak ways i think is sort of a if they're going to be the, the vanilla dominance it's just the fact that they're really aggressively costed figures with lots of power to make sure you get the abilities that they want to use and abilities that will reduce bad luck if you take away any kind of emotional excitement or interest in the star wars theme that is almost always what's going to be at or near the top however the game is updated or or in a period where it stays the same for a while. I, I was literally thinking a lot of the exact same things. I was like, well, okay, so I, I think Hunters has got to be like, when you talk about most effective tactics, dropping assassinating tools for the job with a focused attack, there's not much better than that. And then heightened reflexes, having access to getting rid of the dodge from someone else, probably tactics-wise, huge deal. Weakway specifically, it's really interesting. I think their strongest ability is the, the reroll I think actually talking about that and rerolls and, and mitigation as well, one of the things that we see in ICP and others is this idea of when do you get to make the choice? So assassinate, uh, heightened reflexes, the weak ways reroll, all of this you only need to do once you 
seen the dice have betrayed you. If the dice haven't betrayed you, you hang on to that card. If there's any ability on a figure or card or even sort of class function that makes you invest early or where you're going to have a much saltier interaction because you've overinvested too soon, it's another form of mitigation, but it's sort of how much control have you been given. And I think so much of the hunter abilities based on where they were in the timing scheme meant that you could use them if you needed them and didn't need to use them if they didn't. I mean, here's where old man Alistair comes in. I was a big HK fan. I loved the I'll re-roll one of my die and I'll re-roll one of yours. And they come up with the weak ways and I was like, oh, it's interesting. You know, they've kind of cleaned the rule up. I'll just re-roll one die. And that's just a hundred times better because re-roll the die you need to re-roll. Every time you have an HK where you didn't need to re-roll their die and your die roll was as perfect as blue, blue, yellow could be, that wasn't useful abilities. Whereas with weak ways, which ended up being cheaper, it was sort of like surgical. It was like, this is always going to be exactly what you need. Yeah, so a big focus currently, I think, is to mitigate things that are reliant on dice rolls. And I think this connects really well to why things like yellow, red dice attacks can really betray you sometimes. (laughs) You know, it it looks good on paper, right? Yellow die and red die are, are great those death troopers oh my god love them the moment you need them to do anything though you will not get what you need (laughs) single damage red single surge yeah yeah exactly the red dodge yeah (laughs) that's quite powerful but then we have another layer below this where we we subconsciously also think that imperial assault is very cagey game right so not only do we mitigate the the luck on dice rolls you also try not to give your opponents the chance to take say free shots or to get free points and this this can be quite different from a game where the best tactics available are to maybe rush everything forward if you're playing a a card game where you just want to deal as much damage as you can very quickly until you win yeah like the biggest monsters possible yeah so kind of the the biggest nastiest most in your face things This does not seem to be that strong in Imperial Assault. Yeah. I mean, another factor that at a subtle level informs all the meta and and always has is whatever else you do, dead is better than any other objective point, any other thing you can achieve. If you can take something off the board, it it is gone. Yeah. And, you know, the wounding mechanic for the heroes in the campaign is interesting because it's a a consequence. You'd really like to avoid that first defeat, but you've got a a limited and reduced way to, to still act and operate afterwards. So much of hunter power the the spike damage that sort of is their niche and the the caginess of the game is there's very rarely been a, a mission objective that's been worth losing anything other than the the absolute bog cheapest character in terms of what you've gained versus what you've lost in terms of points um, i had a lot of fun actually with a attempting the old victory point sort of disposable scum list where it was hired guns and jabba and guido and vinto everybody cheap everybody running and my idea was get one kill that you've sort of piled all the points onto and everybody else be a little more disposable and uh it surprised me by getting close as it did sometimes but it's far too generous to just be losing figures to your opponent jawa swarms i think find this as well death and not being able to come back or the sacrifice of of bad dice rolls and losing your big uh, queen piece in this game it's hugely consequential yeah i think that that's a a pretty good lead into discussing the victory point style of list Mm -hmm. so you you can have this very effective tactic of ensuring that you've got figures with very good say health damage ratios compared to what else is available and you try to pick up all these abilities that let you mitigate bad dice rolls right but on on the other hand you can also try to focus on things that give you victory points which directly win you the game without having to jump through all these hoops of catching their figures out killing them and then getting victory points from them so you know if you play rebel 
graffiti, you just get the points. There, there mm-hmm. was no dice rolling involved there or anything like that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I lost my last game at Worlds because of Rebel Graffiti. Oh. That was brutal. I was sitting there thinking I had the game one. The score was like 17 to 14 or something like that. And it was like, he can't attack me with any of his figures. I can't attack him with any of his figures. It's the last round. I'm going to win. I don't have oh, to do anything. Oh, wow. And then he draws a card with Jabba. It's Rebel Graffiti. He plays it twice and beats me by a point. Yeah. Ouch. Cards like that are, and the conversations they generate are really interesting in a sense of, it's more of a mathy question, but when we talk about dice mitigation in a D6 system and we talk about points management in a 40-point victory is, you know, the lever between whether Rebel Graffiti should be one or two points or whether the dice should have been six-sided or eight-sided as they are in X-Wing, uh, other big FFG games uh, where they chose that is, uh, you know, in a way, a lot of the conversations about what's meta and what's fair is saying, well, this might not be that bad, but in a system where two points is 5% of the, uh, the what I need to win, and I might be able to play it multiple times, it's always going to be, there are going to be certain sweet spot cards and sweet spot figures that sort of eke out for that very reason. I wonder if the game needed to have more numbers so there could be more variability, or if that actually creates new problems. Right, I think it can get quite complicated. Just speaking of meta and change, and just changing the game entirely, there was a time in my first worlds was you didn't get the victory points unless the squad was entirely killed and everything about the game and what became the most powerful at that time was well a three unit high health deployment i.e your elite stormtroopers your gold standard uh was going to give you tons of opportunities to be useful and then run that last guy away to more or less just choke the point off your opponent and one of the things that you know when the meta moved on it didn't really bear as much discussion afterwards but that that worlds i went to where there was decent split between the three factions but really it was dominated by blaze troopers that was sort of the big list that dan taylor won with and a lot of his people who played with him or knew him myself included realized was the meta was that there was lots of reroll mitigation but the matches were all coming down to really close tie breaks lots of time lots of caginess so hunters and and the point change really accelerated the game but it changed fundamentally what you could it, it showed me that there's only so much wiggle room you have if it's going to be a, a game they want to keep to about an hour for about 40 points. Uh, you either had games that were almost starved of points and, and death and interaction, or games where it's just, well, that's over before it's begun. Right. It was a pretty good example of how the developers sort of stepped in and changed the meta in a big way. So yes. not only did they do the points change, they also put Jabba in, which just made all those stormtroopers worth 33% more, right? That happened at the same time. That's interesting. Exactly. So, so we everybody was sort of adjusting. This game actually had a really decently long prime period. People will always find something to complain about. I really enjoyed it before the trooper change and enjoyed it after, which I think a lot of gamers don't often say. It's sort of like it became a different game that was a different kind of fun. But I feel that one of the things we never came back to was when it was, you know, these squads on squads of stormtroopers. It's probably the closest I've come to playing a Legion or Warhammer because let's just take the list I took to, I won the first national with. At the time, I thought this was smart as anything. It was an Imperial list with Blaze, two elite stormtroopers, and temporary alliance in one squad of the elite uh, wing guards. Point being, all reinforceable troopers who could throw grenade, but they all re-rolled blue-green. Now, what that meant is that's a lot of figures that you're moving around the board trying to move together so they re-roll off each other. You had a slightly more kind of macro game, whereas uh, I'm just going to take the other end of the spectrum, which is Spectre Cell, which was sort of like when people were having fun with like Smuggler Box, the old version, or, or Mountain List. Just queen pieces, just sort of, they, they don't need to be too close together. The maps aren't that important for it. So very glass half full, but the game sort of had phases where it was both very 
legion like armies and and then very kind of like hero queen piece fight battle royale yeah if we go back to our original topic of what the actual meta is currently i think it's definitely going to be quite aggressive in damage so the hunters are really strong right now and especially because they're ranged right we have this ranged hunters versus brawlers that you could have if you have an aggressive list and the ranged lists have a lot more flexibility and so i think that flexibility makes scum really strong right now because they also have that bit of vp manipulation that you can put in the addition of java where you can take pieces off the board and get extra points is really strong i think aggressive hunter lists are doubly strong because like we said before you get the points for killing and you also weaken your opponent range has interesting periods in terms of meta and shifting where sometimes range feels bad but i think it almost always wins out in the end no matter how they power up melee or cards will come to people once good players who really learn the maps the sight lines the positioning guns are are not weaker than melee enough there's so many really powerful guns that hit from really long range and it's not like a melee is proportionately scarier to get into face to face given the advantage that you've just described i think a big thing that affects this part of the meta is the maps like you were just talking about sight lines and the size of the maps as well, where the objectives are placed. Because as a Vader player, uh, I play a lot of brawlers and there are certain maps where you just cannot get around. There's too many wide open places. The positioning is really tricky. And so I think the maps makes a huge difference. Derek, what do you think about the maps that are currently in rotation? Yeah, at at this point, I might assume that we've got the the newest one and Tarkin is out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Endor. That's a good map to talk about because I I feel like almost everybody, if we're talking about playing online, has kind of assumed that that has been rotated in and played a lot. Actually, that one's really interesting for how it kind of has shifted uh, the meta a little bit. It's done a couple of things. Controlling that center room has meant some queen pieces have a big advantage, especially when controlling it gives you six points on the one mission. I'm a queen piece player all the time, uh, IG typically, but sometimes Vader or Han or something like that. And all three of those figures can just dominate that room so much and it makes a huge difference. There's a spot where you can put Vader in that room that anyone who's on the barracks tile will be attacked by Vader's and a attack. You can't escape it. He can move to and attack every space on that tile. I've seen Han do really well as well. Yeah. I think Han's an example, incidentally, of just the idea of how powerful but with range you don't really feel everybody loves Han and everybody loves Vader but I don't know if you could really tell me that I'm you know decisively less scared of a powered up Han hit than I am of a powered up Vader hit equally scared (laughs) like and you've paid a lot more to get Vader into me than you have with with Han to be fair if Vader was focused you should probably be more scared of him than Han and and I'm joking a bit but like the truth is nobody's got the health pool for that to matter so you may as you may as well be just about as scared of as one as the other in terms of the ending you. Vader is easier to get away from because he has to actually get base to base to you. Whereas mm-hmm. Han can shoot from quite some ways away. It does speak to something we were talking a little bit with both sightlines, range, and maps is the fun meta that I've never seen go away entirely, which is the choke Vader. Somebody needs to be so good at designing their list and being able to afford all those points even at his reduction. But back to this idea about how powerful range is and map and sightlines, it's amazing to see a 
very effective choke vader who's just taking advantage of that unlimited range non-dice guaranteed damage and using it to win games i've seen it work better when people don't you know see it coming because it can be one of those sort of surprise tactics but the advantage of line of sight and uh, avoiding the dice that's a very very cool strategy yeah i mean so so vader lists represent another quite good example of taking strong health and damage units because you usually pair him with pretty efficient things right like jets or or riot troopers and vader himself with the new new maps and things he he can control an objective that is kind of worth it now so he's you know he's able to take take control of that barracks and he he hits quite hard he's got re-rolls on both attack and defense so he helps mitigate all of those dice rolls as well so that's that's an example of the imperial meta list i would say i would say the imperial meta is vader with ffg that there are other things and they have worked. Riot Swarm was a really interesting one that's back now that I, like nobody's really playing it, but could be back now that uh, Spectre Cell's been nerfed. But it takes a skilled player to play Vader, so usually what I find is any event that I'm going to, I try to count on playing one to two matches against a Vader player. Every faction was designed with a couple of different strategies, and it's it's, it's adorable to see some of the strategies that never really worked, but you could sell the idea. It's every faction sort of, I think you can tell the designers wanted there to be an idea of like, like if you want to play all expensive heroics, there's a way to make it work. If you want to play one queen piece with efficient backup, it's another way. And then there should be the, the, the no-name squad. And of course, you know, rebels have more reliance on on named figures, but every faction sort of could theoretically lean into either direction. It just certainly came down that with the reason Imperial was dominant in a deny point sw- swarmy era was because that was where it was better than you just didn't need to bring Vader, you didn't need to bring anybody more than Blaze. Whereas when it became more, let's have health pools big enough to survive really huge hits, but also let's be able to completely sweep in, in one. I really don't know any viable list now that can do without a queen piece. Anytime I've tried a, a, a full-on swarm, uh, I don't think you can really do it now. I think mid-range Hunters does quite well without a queen piece, unless you're counting stuff like Onar. Onar is a good example of probably the baby Bowser. Very good case for the best six points in the game. Fully agree with that boy. Definitely. I'd like to pose kind of the converse to what we've been talking about. What do you think at the moment just is not in the meta? My things that I'm thinking about is force users at the moment just aren't quite effective That's enough. not necessarily true if you consider Spectre Cell as still being a tier 1.5 list. You still have the Ezra, Ezra Kanan that's quite strong, but it's not really an, an archetype per se. And Vader yeah. is a force user. <laughs> oh, no, no. But what I think is interesting, what Je- I think what Jess is saying is, and I think I hear it really well, is that when people play force users, they're not playing the keyword. I mean, you might be taking the figure and they may have the lightsaber, but the there are a, a ton of cards and designed interactions in the game that should allow you or players this is where i say what i said earlier in the podcast about the informing the meta with what fan preference is people want to use force powers people don't really throw lightning people don't really uh we've talked about force choke i think it was brilliantly interesting design with kanan and ezra discarding force user cards and then finding ways to use them again or channel the force yeah. i agree i think when isaac and i day one got our boxes of lotho it, it actually was the day of the national so we finished it and we said let's open this up and, and isaac immediately built specter cell and i was like oh i'll try lothcats and i got destroyed <laughs> yes i remember i remember you messaged me on the train i, I literally probably said like uh-oh because i specter was something i was like wowzers but we spent lo- all the way on the 
a train ride home talking about the one point. Channel of the Force is the one point inspector. Is it the one to take? I, I think just my answer to your question is it was really fun to think, well, you do Spectre and with your one point, you have Ezra grab an amazing two point force user card. And then maybe in round two, he has another. He'll recover the health he's lost, straining that. And then what a great list. But back to what we said earlier as well, predictable. As soon mm. as you knew what was in the opponent's hand or as soon as those force user cards got cracked, that was not the way to win with Spectre, even though it had two of the best force user cards in the game. So I think it's probably in the cards more than the figures. What about our spies in the meta? I definitely think so. Yeah, I think spies get played sometimes. I've seen a lot more of them in IECP because we've been kind of working on that. I would say the place where you see spies is probably the most is in a box list. So someone bringing along like Mac or something like that to have some flavor. Although I've seen a decent amount of people starting to experiment with Claudites. Yeah. Which is actually really interesting. Even when playing regular Imperial Assault, they're bringing in a regular Claudite or something just to toss out some Intel Leak or get a few more damage tokens or something. Yeah, I think Claudite's always had a lot of potential that, that nobody's really cracked. I've certainly tried myself with Mac as well and Mern. The regular Claudite is an expensive spy, feels like too much investment when uh, you're really just trying to create an anchor for some amazing cards. The, the one thing, like we were talking about Force users, right, and going into expensive spies, Ahsoka's actually the one figure that I think sees decent amount of play from people. Uh, not you're, But you're not usually building around her Force user ability, you're building around her as a spy, or just her as doesn't really need any extra cards, right? You throw, you get her to move eight and attack somebody, and that is your goal, and and then hopefully get her to run away again. And she's kind of like a giant loth cat that plays spy cards. Exactly, yeah, which is pretty interesting. I actually think that spy right now is quite prevalent because of the number of IG players. Mm. The The reason is that it makes your spy cards more strong, right? If, you, if you've got a really good target like uh, Blaze of Glory or Son of Skywalker, being able to get rid of On the Lamb is quite good, but I don't think On the Lamb was as game-changing as milling somebody's Blaze of Glory. When I played Blaze at the Nationals, when Blaze was one of the first really cool implementations of spy card powers, and ISBs were semi-viable in, in the older meta, they went dark for a bit. But whether or not it's about Blaze and, and Blaze of Glory, Son of Skywalker, or anything, at the time back then... Blaze's ability to look into your opponent's uh, hand and, and kick something out was being used for Grenadier reinforcements, take initiative. I think that fundamentally, whatever the meta is kicking up as the most powerful cards, and no disagreement that Blaze is super great card to see killed with a spy card. Actually, I think one of the reasons spies are, and I'm just going to say it, they're kind of a pro-gamer move. It's that card control, if you've got an encyclopedic knowledge of what your opponent could have in their hand, the ability to change the card hand and still be a viable list. I mean, I'm going to give an edge to a person who knows how to build a good spy list more times than somebody who doesn't. Spy is a nuanced play. That's why a cheap spy in the hands of a very good player, oof, dangerous. No, whether you're playing plays or not. Even just knowing knowing what's in their hand more than Intel Leak, yes, it's good to get rid of a card, but it also gives you a ton of knowledge. Yeah. Uh, just having seen the opponent's hand. And then, so yes, you toss one card, but then you know, oh, well, maybe I won't attack this person because I know MHD has Miracle one of the things with the time that I played with Blaze was that there was a funny interaction that was present everywhere. On most of the maps, there was something you could shoot, a door, or as it happens, the Dianoga, and Blaze's ability let you get a free, more or less, intelligence leak. So every match I played, I'm sure I had like four or five mirror matches at that Worlds, whereas both of us would start the game, have a quick peek at the opponent's hand, and then just be chessing it out, knowing what the opponent had. My massively heartbreaking but amazing final tiebreak loss game was his Blaze whiffed on the door. So first shot, <laughs> was the door. 
can't find a surge. So just suddenly feeling that power of, aha, I know something you don't. And I'm going to have to make you see you make decisions without knowing what's in my hand. Just to show how different the game was when, you know, it was all access passed to your hand, basically. Everybody everybody was going to be able to look. You're quite right. That's always been really powerful. But back to the idea of the designers. It's so fun looking at those old cards when they thought it would be really exciting to get a spy into your opponent's deployment zone and look at their hand and put it back where you found it and spend two points for the privilege. I mean, like, they got that it would be powerful, but it's hilarious how those cards are costed. Yeah, so as, as you guys said, the spies do show up occasionally as sort of a splash option in Mercenary mm-hmm. or Imperial. Some people like to add the trooper upgrade. For one point, they can get spies. But they tend to show up a lot in box lists in the Rebel side. of. So in terms of what's in the meta for Rebels at the moment, what would you guys say? Han. <laughs> so Han's always going to be good. Thing. He's gone quiet because everybody feels like he doesn't need to be mentioned anymore. But three PO, three PO has always been the okay, meta, fair. and it's it's hilarious because he's just he's become he's, he's like a, he's like a punctuation mark now. It's like well, you know, obviously, obviously, it's actually a great role for him. It, it, it's always been everything you've just described. He's this tiny little splash character. He's got a defensive ability. He's got a pacing ability in terms of being a soft activation. You know, he's actually kind of the fulcrum of a lot of boxes. If I ever ran up against a rebel list and didn't see three PO, I probably wouldn't notice the first round. Then I'd be like, wait a minute. This is the craziest rebel list I've ever seen. He's beyond meta. He's just absolutely, how could you leave him behind? Han, 3PO, focusing stuff up. And I guess with all the defensive measures, a bit of that points points denial left over from the old trooper days. Yeah, I think I think the other reason a spy is really good in a rebel list is because they're more vulnerable to the hunter cards as well. I think that, which I, I've always thought was sort of nicely thematic, hunters should terrify rebels and in a perfect world hunters should be terrified of the long arm of the imperial law you know if you if you weren't presenting somebody for those wonderful assassinating cards go on just be nothing but riot police that should be bad news for the bounty hunters yeah i think that is that is sort of true nothing but riot police is terrifying yeah well when we played our national <laughs> game david if you remember you sort of had, had used this great well-designed list to take down a number of uh, hero squads and then suddenly i'm showing up all death troopers and riots and you're like okay i gotta change gears here okay so i think that that's a pretty good overview of what's actually in the meta right now we've covered a little bit about scum imperial and rebel the next thing i would like to talk about is how this differs from region to region so it's pretty clear that depending on which tournaments you attend and which places you go to you will face a very different field and the the lists themselves may be the same but you'll have you know a great number of certain lists versus other lists and in terms of trying to win an event this makes a really big impact so we let's let's split this up into kind of three regions, I would say North America, Europe, and then online or, or global for everybody who plays on Vassal. So I, I actually don't don't know too much about regions outside of these areas. With apologies to our friends in Australia, and I think I, I know they have a scene, but th- there's really not enough cloche pollinization. I actually know there's some really cool oceanic leagues, and some of them did very well in a few worlds. But Yeah, so if we have any listeners in any of these regions, please shoot us an email. Yes, let us know. Let's start with the North American meta. What is popular? So we, we know what is effective in terms of tactics. Winnings. 
but what is what are most people playing? That's a good question. I, I, honestly, I feel like what we've been discussing has been typically what you've seen a lot in the meta. The, the interesting thing about North America versus Europe is because everything is so geographically far apart, typically only play your local region and then go to one or two uh, bigger tournaments. At some places in the U.S., you'll see people able to get to a couple more tournaments just because they have more bigger events. Um, and they're not quite as far. Like for me, I have to take a 24-hour drive to get to Nationals in Toronto, right? So that's not really a great option, not something I was able to do. I basically had to like decide, am I going to Nationals or the Worlds? Of course, this year I didn't get to do either. But <laughs> for me, when I'm making meta decisions, I'm either thinking about, if I'm, I'm thinking locally, then it's like based on, like I actually go based on like the specific people that I know are attending the event, which is a very different uh, thing. So I know I'm going to have one guy who's going to play either a Han smugglers list or he's going to go a like creature uh, scum list right like he brought Bosk to regionals and he doesn't particularly care about uh, the, the most competitive list out there but sometimes it's really interesting the stuff that he pulls out like he'll play Lando or Jin and different things like that you know where he's just like I want to play the figures that I like he plays a lot of Rancor or he actually he had what did he have this time? He had Boss and a Wamba with Lion Ambush. Awesome. Right? So it's like, I would say that's completely off meta everywhere else. But for me, that's like, that's just what I expect from him. Then I have the one guy who plays pretty standard meta lists because he's a little more of a spike player and wants to. So when he when he's playing non-competitively, he'll experiment with a bunch of stuff and have fun and it kind of feels like a Johnny. But when it comes to tournaments, he really digs into like what's the meta everywhere, what's what works really effectively. So he brought Hondrock Sabine and did pretty well with it. That's a really solid list. That's one of the most common rebel lists that you'll see all three of those figures are just, they have horrible synergy in terms of traits, right? The best you got is a hunter to a smuggler to be able to play tools, but it works out somehow because all the figures are really great. I think it's worth saying there, you know, apologies to the Wookiee and Heavy Weapon fans. I mean, there's never really been enough love for those two keywords. They've tried here and there, but they've never been close to viable, I think. Yeah, it's all just drop, bringing arcing shot and uh, collateral damage, I think. Yeah, a little extra damage output, I think, is the the right one there. Yeah. Then I was bringing Scum Hunters, that's, that's what I always do. I came up with an IG box for this year, trying to go off meta a little bit. And the whole point of that for me was to look at how do you... Actually, it, it came out of listening to one of the Built on Hope episodes, actually. Oh, All right. System works. Yeah. You guys were talking about different win conditions and different uh, resources that you can have and spend. And I started thinking about health pool as a resource. And so I, I started looking at health pools and what was most effective at staying alive. And I was I decided to bring MHD and then IG is really strong with the extra block and 12 health and then Onar with his 15 health is awesome and then I just I brought in Hondo because that seems like the the one that fit the best at the time there were a couple other figures that I toyed around with like BT or Sabine because they have a bit more recoverability and they're droid and vehicles so R2 can heal them as well but in the end Hondo kept winning out especially because his card kept you alive for a round after an attack and he's also got on the lamb which is the strongest defensive ability you can possibly have 
Yeah, and everyone thought I was running it, and I wasn't. Because he was, he was the only smuggler other than a Jawa in my list, and it just didn't feel worth the three points. I think the double think is everybody's favorite daydream about if you want to be a clever list player. I think uh, hoping that somebody thinks you have something and, and how it works. And, and when I say it's everybody's daydream, actually, I'm not saying because it never works. There's a great, uh, great, great <laughs> Vader list I was playing against who you know, got me so good. I, I, it might sometimes only work once because he absolutely got me in an amazing game because he had unshakable Vader. And I found out afterwards that I'd spending all this time trying to avoid that uh, parting blow that wasn't going to come because he didn't run it. And just the, the, you know, the <laughs> smug face on him saying, I, I dialed you up for, for that. I mean, th- that said, I think that whenever I've been building this and looking at health as a pool, one of the reasons I end up going back to Imperial is that the white die, you say on the lamb is the strongest ability, defensive ability of the game. No, it's the, it's the, it's the one-sixth of the white die face that's the strongest ability <laughs> in the sure. game. And weirdly, yeah. I end up liking doing health counting on Imperial lists because they're generally more black dice and, and you got yeah. Zillow. So there's sort of more of a I can tell how much I'm yeah. buying when I buy it. When I play Hondo, possibly because I'm a big swingy player, I can sometimes really overpay for his health pool if I see two blanks in a row. So uh, I, I find that one of the things I quite like about the swinginess of the white die is health pool as a meta metric is more reliable if you don't have that dodge or even that on the lamb option. You can really kind of count it. That's exactly why I play Imperial. But the guy who ended up winning our regional this year meta-wise, was someone who played the metagame super strong, my best friend Eric. He didn't tell any of us what he bought. He ended up going in secret and buying six Lothcats. <laughs> Amazing. Painted them all up, told us not, nothing about it, brought other stuff to all of our events beforehand and didn't practice it against any of us. And he really geared it to, like, it just picked apart my IG box. Actually, the, the I played him in Swiss and I beat him, but then the second time round, we played on Coruscant with the posters and I think he only attacked my figures that came out to try to pick flip posters but he threatened everything on the board and got like six points almost every round. Sounds great. I think back, back to what we were saying a bit earlier about disposable figures Lothcats are you know, at that smuggler level of about as close as you can get to being you, you might sort of gear them up to be thrown away to dive bomb them in and then not have high hopes for them. I think one of the reasons David's so good with them and the best Lothcat players is that you get the right balance of not treating them as utterly disposable. They're much more surgical. Funnily enough, this was true of the Bantha as well. If you played the Bantha pretending like, I don't care if it dies, you would probably lose. It's probably going to die, but how it dies and when, and how those cheap, as you say, really uh, long-range units, if he was the kind of Lothcat player who took that swarm and ran them all out, he'd be very, very easy to clean up. It's actually using them in a very kind of in-the-trees way is probably right. Now, Derek, do you notice there's a particular play style that's predominant? I see a lot less of uh, EP, so I see a lot more kind of go for the damage aggressive lists in in North America I would say that that would be typical this has shifted since double weekways evolved to take on specter cell but before that you never saw Jabba being played very much. That that was always the off-meta person who was playing Jabba. Interesting. It was a, kind of a known thing. I remember hearing about it on uh, Zion's Finest, talking about Jabba being this thing that uh, European players played because they got it a few months later than us, and so they were still kind of interested. <laughs> and there was, a, there was almost this like contempt for Jabba as a figure that was there for a while in North America. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, no, like, there's doubt and we need like to be as efficient as possible, so let's get triple focus, weak ways, attacking, Spectre Cell kind of thing. And all of a sudden, that changed everything. That plus, I think Hondo and Sabine as figures with their victory point manipulation is like the first time we finally had a viable victory point, only victory point manipulation option. Before they came out, like trying to run something like that just wasn't 
you couldn't quite get enough points. I remember hearing about uh, Patrick Wintermute on the Slack, his uh, Jawa list, right? Six Jawas, Sabine and Hondo and Java. And it's just like all about victory point manipulation. And that you couldn't have done that without Hondo and Sabine in that list. Same with Java, I guess, as well. But uh, that was that was definitely not a part of the meta before Spectre Cell became a thing. Yeah, so I, I guess we're postulating that North America meta was a lot more killy. The European meta was a lot more yeah. victory point focused. And I felt like the play style here was a lot more cagey. <laughs> so I think that's definitely true in the UK. I don't know, Alistair, you've been to a lot more tournaments outside of the UK and Europe. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's fair to say that there have been some, you know, European players who at, the, at Nationals have always done, you know, extremely well. Greg, uh, you know, at number two, and then one, I think one of the best attended and, and really healthiest meta took his Han Rangers right to the top for the great battle with Den uh, with his Iggy list, uh, you know, which was a beautiful final to watch in person. I think that European players, I'm going to say, say it both ways, can be more sentimental, whereas conversations with Americans about meta and about game tend to be, in my experience, steered towards getting the right answer. What is a good card or a bad card or a good list or a bad list? And if I'm going to be really, you know, nice about it, it's actually really generous. But it's not necessarily like shutting people down for saying the idea. It's actually more let's move this conversation on to the stuff and really focus on the bit that matters. So there can be a little bit of dismissing of certain strategies, certain units, maybe even to a degree with Jabba, sort of saying, yeah, but you know that that one's been written off, so. Let's let's look at this part of the meta. And I've been on both sides of finding that to be both very right to say that you know it's helped me look at a figure and say actually I've probably you know got a soft spot this figure, but there's the math really favors that one. Whereas in other cases I think it has allowed certain things to creep through that that can end up surprising American players with what Europeans bring in. And I think Avidas is an amazing example for those of you who have seen him or played him that he is a very very tricky player to play against but i've very rarely seen him with a very vanilla list and he always plays them beautifully i think my, my favorite avidas story is that we were all at nationals having a, a, a laugh and a drink about what was the worst imperial assault list the worst legal imperial assault list you could possibly create the, the rule was basically that your command cards had to be viable you couldn't put you know cards that couldn't work and it had to be a legal list but if you made this list and gave it to somebody you know they couldn't win we all had fun we all made one I think every, you know we all tried something off avidas broke it completely he was so clever and uh, basically made an imperial list that had all hunter cards because they'd swung in jabba and he figured out the jabba couldn't get out of six of the viable exits <laughs> <laughs> there's a corkscrew thinking there that can really help and uh, i think that one of the things that europeans fitfully benefit from is what david's called kind of joker play kind of saying like how do i go a totally different direction here and end up with the right result and avidas is, is a great uh, illustration of that that's a slight teaser for a later episode where we talk about oh, right. batman and joker and how that influences people's oh, right. play styles well, back to the idea of the uk meta and the european meta what you see is a lot of people really uh, very proud of their paint jobs really proud of their lists and i think one of the best comeuppances i got as i was sort of playing somebody i didn't really know very well who was playing specter and it was a really frustrating game and he just said you know quite earnestly at the end of the game he's like i play these guys because i just i love these characters i love seeing them move and work and i've probably had more european games where people said like i just really wanted to see how leia and boba would work together or making each other laugh with what you bring to the list uh, just like your friends sort of bringing out a big surprise yeah. I, I feel that people have enjoyed uh, i certainly have myself as well plopping something down against the opponent and just being like i mean go like what you're running that like to really enjoy it and that's certainly been my experience because i think a 
lot of the uh, UK communities are also the you know relatively tight knit game shops. And maybe this is another global trend. We'll talk about online as well. The game shops as many as there are and as many as regionals there are the game we have you don't get that many rounds in there'll be more randomness because there's a less of a pool where certain things just get sort of disproven by massive numbers spikiness can happen if you've got a bunch of regionals that all go into about four or five rounds and online which you know it's we're going to talk about as well is it's the imperial assault where you actually can get thousands and thousands of plays analyzed and start seeing what just over time will be ground down i think the uk has um, got a really healthy amount of spiky meta which kicks out some fun stuff even if it's not quite as scientific maybe as what you get in the us what i thought was quite interesting is whether or not you two think that the regional metas are heavily influenced by individual people so we already mentioned basically that the us had sort of written off Java for a long time. But in my mind, Java was always part of the meta because Here. yeah, because of, of Luke, who is such a prominent player in, in Europe, right? Yep. He's he's won too many things, definitely. I, I hate I hate the word, but I think winningest is definitely <laughs> the best term. He's, he has got the most consistent track record uh, of performance, and he is, yes, I think ex- almost exclusively a scum player. Yeah, and he's always got Java. So in my mind, you know, Java always been at the top tables here no matter what event you went to i think the people that win really big events do shape the meta going forward because people look to them like oh that worked really well yeah do we want to discuss also peer pressuring for well yeah because <laughs> i've got, have... got, got a point on that because i think <laughs> like the specter cell gentlemen's agreements that we had over here and kind of we have a lot of very prominent people that prioritize the sense of community basically and we kind of peer pressure other people into being nice basically in a lot of events well i was actually going to take an earlier example but i think I'll, I'll, both are really viable. So I think it's really important to anybody listening from North America, it can be easy to say you've got a better system than a worse system. I actually quite get their being like, is it about winning or is it about... You You really don't want to make anybody feel bad for coming to an event, getting excited for an event because they want to win. And I think that there was a few regionals where we had the idea of the Spectre Gentleman's Agreement, but one of the best ones that I can remember is basically a lot of us came together and said, look, if, if any one person wants to play it, nobody make them feel bad. Yeah. The thing is going to happen, though, is all of us are going to reach into our other pocket and bring Spectre as well. So it was a crazy you know, Mexican standoff because the idea was... We've all brought it. We've all got it. But if everybody kind of wanted to try their B-list, let's run our B-lists against each other. But as soon as I knew I was going to be playing against one and, and I wanted to win, I felt like I wasn't going to stop somebody from doing that. It was just going to limit my choices. And that, that, that was probably even thinking Spectre was too unbeatable or certainly beyond my creativity to solve. But a, another example of the peer pressure that predated Spectre was the Ugnaught Swarm. <laughs> because Tris, a player here, Tris and I had both sort of debated about whether it worked the way we thought it might. And when it turned out, it did. Both of us had sort of tried these Ugnaught swarms out and realized how powerful they were. But the national in question, I mean, th- that was a time when the US market just was depressed as anything because they just said it was unbeatable, the control, the pacing. You know, if you had a good player who knew how to do it, it could not lose. So I was going to nationals and it was, you know, it was nationals. I'd won the last nationals. I was like, well, I saw it, played it, tried it. And I was like, yeah, this can't be beat. And then I went like 0 and 6 for a bit of practice. The, the UK community, by and large, sort of either rejected it because they didn't like it 
or rejected it because they didn't want to learn it. But what happened was, you know, I, that, at that time, I came up against uh, some Lukes and some Miggies and some people who, you know, got the cards and did well. And I certainly am not a patient enough player for it. But it was one of the instances where there was a slight sense of what you're talking about, Jess, where there's this pressure of, oh, are you playing that? Like, have you, have you abandoned what the fun of the game is just to be for winning? And I think that I certainly ride the rail you know, between the both. Sometimes I really want to win and sometimes I, I want to um, I want to perform. But like I said, that guy who was playing Spectre, he's like, like I'm playing this because I like it. I like the characters. I'm not playing it because I'm, you know, trying to ruin the game. And the long Spectre period was such a drought because it was just so hard to keep that smile on your face and say, like, all right, you're right. I don't want to make you feel bad about yeah. this. But, oh, like, is, is this just not the game I want to be playing every other Sunday? So that's a really interesting story, actually, because I've just realized you have actually played all of the meta lists, right? You played yeah. the you played the Trooper Swarm meta list. Yep. You won a regional last season, or this season, I guess, with IG Hunters. You also yep. played Spectre Cell, and you played the Ugna, and you did extremely well with all of the ones that let's say you were not ashamed to play and you <laughs> crashed crashed yeah. really hard with all of the ones you felt and bad about. I still insist that my Spectre performance at Nationals, my greatest victory was you doing well. Because <laughs> I, I couldn't practice anything else because I didn't have any sense of doing better and you practiced your cats against me practicing Spectre so much that it put you in a position to actually have a, a run that was fantastic. Yeah, I think Vader lists that were running a little contrary to spy lists were ones that did really, really well. I've, I've, I've probably never really succeeded with stuff that's utterly wacky, but I've played long enough and I play enough that, and I like the game in Enough, and I want to try the different things. I've never really been set in a role. The the Ugnaught Swarm, the Spectre, I don't think I've ever won. I mean, because arguably, those lists at that time were stronger in the meta than the other things. Like when you won with Vader or when you won Nationals, you know, with Wingard and everything, yeah. those lists you were playing were not so above the rest of the field. No. There was ideas in them that, like what Derek was talking about, you know, I had a pen and paper out, I was looking at jets going, okay, I need to teach myself the minimum they can do. I, I need to not be surprised by this list. So there was work that went into them, but as you say, yeah, totally labor of love. I wasn't feeling like I was trying to learn a list that DT had invented, or that, you know, the Ugnaught thing, I'd read essays and looked at it and thought of what I knew of the game, and I was like, yeah, I, I can't see how I would beat this, therefore, if you can't beat him, join him. Weirdest thing to say is I'm really glad I didn't do as well as that, because I think that had I made it to the distance, what Jess was talking about, that sense at every tier threshold, like, and we got all these players, and Alistair, who chose to do Ugnaughts. And I think I would have <laughs> felt that, subconsciously Consciously, my wrists rolled all those blanks just because I didn't want to <laughs> <laughs> didn't want to have to take that all the way. So, Derek, same question: uh, Who do you think are the really influential players, and how have they shaped the play in North America? There's a few people, and there part of it has to do with different regions and stuff. Part of it just has to do with you know someone like Kenny and Scott and having Zion's finest. Everyone listening to that has had a huge impact on the meta. And same with Jake and the Troopers and stuff like that. You hear those guys going and talking about what they think is good and what they don't think is good and what works and what doesn't. And that actually has a, a huge impact. I, I think right now this podcast is doing the same thing. It kind of shapes the meta because you start talking about what works and you hear about things. Like I, I know I listen to, before I went to Worlds, I just listened to every episode of Zion's Finest and Fun Troopers to find out what is good, what isn't. For a while I was experimenting with, uh, it was basically DPT, but I had Tarot in there as well. And then I listened to the Twin Troopers podcast on Tarot. 
and kind of heard their feedback on it. And then I thought back to my play and I was like, yeah, no, he doesn't quite make the cut. And then I started changing things around again. So I could see that. I know different regions, there's a few names that pop up for people, you know, in those areas that are just known as good players. And you just pay attention to what are those people going to bring on Slack. You hear those conversations, you know, when people are going to Nova or going to some bigger events. I was never able to go to any of those things. I would have loved to. It would be great. And you hear all these things about people talking about what they run, what they don't run. And like, I know that was how I made a lot of my decisions for local events. But then at the same time, I started to realize, oh, there's like a ton of players that don't pay attention to this stuff that don't either aren't playing the metagame particularly or just aren't playing that level of game outside of their region. The people who don't think about going to tournaments and stuff can have a huge impact on on a local meta, but then it doesn't necessarily affect internationally or nationally or something like that. We didn't talk about it at great length, but the, the idea of the online community and the online influence, I mean, one of the things I'm very flattered that Isaac will say every now and then is that when he was getting into the game, I told him my secret sauce was absolutely playing online. It was getting a chance to get more games, getting a chance to get more mm-hmm. other players. If I have noticed one thing is I think that people who are hugely active on Vassal and the Slack channels, getting tons and tons of games in, in one way, they've obviously got a massive advantage just because of practice, you know, that that, that advantage. Yeah. Like, I, I said I do well because I get to play a lot or I got to play a lot. But the funny thing is that you do have massive blind spots from those Vassal players who come, they come to a, uh, they come sit down in a regional and then there's these things that have been just clicking online and working every time. And there's probably a lot of reasons for that, but it's the same thing I alluded to earlier. Is Vassal better because you play enough that you don't get local nuance you don't get isolated temporary winning streaks making certain things feel better like vassal should be the great equalizer and yet it's not always true that you know if you've been killing it on vassal luke our uk champ is a good example i don't think he's ever played vassal but his performance speaks for itself he he knows how to put a list together and play it well what do you think about that david or, or jess i actually don't play much on vassal either i'll play the occasional game really strangely i have this sense that you can skew the meta a little bit by playing too much on vassal mm. and sometimes I, I like to try really weird things, but in smaller local communities, you know, like I was recently playing this four act lion ambush thing. That was really fun. Yeah. yeah. I think we'll have an episode on that later on, actually. Welcome or, to the Academy. Yes. It's coming back. <laughs> or when when we were designing my Lothcat lists for Worlds last year. So I, I don't know if you realize, but I only played eight games with that list before I went to Worlds, and they were all against you <laughs> within like a two-week period. So that was the opposite of this getting lots of, you know, widespread experience. Yeah. At the time, it was a unique situation, though, because we had this feeling that Spectre Cell was the list to beat, and we knew that it would be so prominent at Worlds, right? I could expect most of my games would be against Spectre Cell. And if I could yeah. beat them, then I could surely make it through somehow. Yeah. You know, we joked about it with your friend Derek and, and about it with your ideas about not wanting to let them loose onto Vassal or onto podcasts. Yeah. It is an advantage you can have when people haven't had the chance to play against it. And I frankly impressive that the game, which is creaky in some bits, you know, it's got some, there's some tearing at the seams, but it still has some surprises, even after all these years 
reason, even after being so so tame for so long, because the the right kind of unit, if it hasn't been sort of cracked, let, let me say that I think like my feeling about Drock is actually that Drock is probably more viable because a lot of players still don't practice enough against her and don't actually get a good sense of how to play. So, so I think that Drock, not to run it down, I think it, when you really play knowing what Drock can do and how she'll be able to hook those shots, the power goes away. But there is power as long as people don't see it coming. And if we can come back to what the meta influence of the map, a, a chat I had with Paul Winchester, designer at the time at Worlds, was I said, you know, how do you decide what's a what's a, a viable map for skirmish? Because it kind of we're obviously keeping them up with the releases for new products, so there was sort of a buy buy our stuff element. But they also said like, look, we design about three maps, and maybe every time we design three maps, one of them is proves in testing to not be broken. He said at the time, he's like, I think we won't be able to go forward forever. Eventually, we're going to have to pick a map because we might just not get it right. And I think that one of the things that may be holding FFG back from just releasing the floodgates on all these wonderful maps is that they feel these maps, such as they are, allow people to really refine their tactics. Throw open the floodgates, though, and bring me to a tournament where any map could come up at any time. And it would be so interesting to see what kind of intelligent, reactive play would be required. Some figures are costed well, and they do good in all scenarios, they'd still be good. But it would be so interesting if people weren't able to say, like you're saying, I know I'm going to play Spectre, so I'm going to build for that. I know I'm going to play these maps, I'm going to build for that. So I'm a big advocate, and I'm glad ICB is, is in that area to say, that was such a big part of the puzzle that FFG was setting us every few months before. And I hope that the meta survives a long period of Spectre, and then a long period of same maps. And I just so, saw while recording this that somebody on Facebook has just shared, he's really excited because he's got his Jabba's Palace map. And I'm, I'm both terrified for him but also really happy because that means that you know, <laughs> people are going to play some old skirmish maps they've still got a lot of interesting things to do with them play them with new players you know that's where skirmish really lives and breathes fun creativity surprise and, and the map sort of not being too cracked that's a really interesting discussion you had with the developers about maps mm-hmm. and i think you can offer a lot of insight maybe in terms of iacp and how to choose maps later on because if, if as you say they just design a bunch and then they test them afterwards and figure out that only one of them is really a balanced map. That indicates maybe some of the maps we should not use in tournament rotation, right? Some of them might just be unworkable. We've been definitely having those conversations as a steering committee for ICP. Which maps to use, which ones not to use. We start looking at maps, all of a sudden, like, well, this one's super unbalanced. Like, you have access to a terminal on this side that somebody doesn't, or just, you know, like, that's like the, the most basic example of what makes something unbalanced, but sometimes you look at a map and at first it looks good and then you start playing on it and you realize someone can really take advantage on one side over the other. So yeah, it's definitely been a, an interesting conversation. That's kind of where we rotated one or two maps that we looked at that seemed like they were okay and we went back to some old ones. So we're right now trying to look at uh, what are good, balanced maps that haven't been a part of tournament rotation yet. So if anyone has any opinion, please jump on uh, to the website and let us know. Something else has come through with this meta discussion, preference and math, you know, the, the left brain, right brain. I think what you can see in the map designs that they try to do is in some cases, they're trying to design chessboards. In other cases, they're trying to recreate classic Star Wars moments. They're, they're, trying to, yes. they're trying to create stories. And I think that some of my favorite maps are the ones that really do have fun stories or create create stories because you're you're pursuing an interesting goal or the way that it's set up with a, one little picture and you know there's quite an interesting mission being pursued. I think that when the designers were looking at 
at making these maps. One of my other favorite stories, which some people may know, is that Skirmish was invented because they were having fun testing campaign characters. So they were designing a campaign character and they needed to know how it worked or how strong it was. And their idea was they couldn't keep playing the story mission. So they just started making these maps and running them at each other and dying. And they were doing that for the scum. And they were like, they were having so much fun making these lists and running them at each other. They said, we've accidentally sort of made a game in a game. I love that as uh, an origin for Skirmish. Skirmish was born in what ISCP does, which is test and balance what makes character fun and what makes a map fun versus what makes it viable and where the points need to be shifted. You saying about you know how they were designing the maps, I think they were probably always balancing that. The reason a map kind of came with a figure every time was that every figure needed to be run and tested in a kind of skirmishy mode to get enough plays in to see how uh, the points worked. And um, when I flip through my cards of my old skirmish maps, I can sometimes flatter myself that I think I'm like, okay, this one was invented because they were like wanting to try this new feature out they'd introduced in a few characters and this one is just because they wanted to have a, a mission that had a carbon freezing chamber and they needed to have a carbon freezing chamber and something and they wanted and they knew players wanted to play a mission where you threw somebody into carbon freezing chamber and that's great that's a really interesting thought in that you're saying basically that if you want to play a lot of imperial assaults it's better to play skirmish than campaign <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of the fun about campaign is the surprises, yeah, that's the right. story. And actually, you know, what you were saying as well about the finding some maps that turn out to be broken and wrong. The information advantage is one of the hardest things about Imperial Assault as it goes on for a long time, because nobody's going to memorize all those books and missions. But the Empire is a little underpowered compared to the Rebels because he knows what's going to come next. And the, the Rebels generally don't. Whenever those play by forum campaign games are happening, the Rebels won't be able to help themselves. and They will know that opening a door does X and Y. And my God, does the Empire's job become harder. But with those broken maps and missions, I think the the interesting thing about the, the Lucky Dip model, even with the broken maps, is a little bit like uh, the Keyforge idea, that you might pull a really bad position, a really bad map, but if you are on the same footing as your opponent, because you're both trying to learn it as quickly as possible before winning in 55 minutes, you might be able to squeak a win if you can figure out something about it before they can. And I think that Imperial Assault uh, will benefit in a meta sense from certain things rising, cream rising to the top. I think what IACP does really well, bringing back uh, units people aren't familiar with or introducing new rules, letting people debate them. And I think all the maps, the, the good and the bad maps in the box, mean the game's got a lot of future as lean into the meta, then break it sometimes with uh, stuff that just totally changes the rules. Yeah. In terms of thinking about the Imperial Assault meta, we've talked a lot about the metas in different places and how they evolve and what it is right now. Mm. It's a good good point to just stop and kind of look at the current meta as a whole. And I would like us to say, you know, what are the pros of it and what needs to be changed about it? I'll volunteer my thoughts first <laughs> in that I think the current meta is actually very good. Okay. The European one is definitely points-based hunters. The American one, you see a lot more kind of killy hunters. I think you actually see more Vader and more box in America mm -hmm. than in Europe. And this this almost means that there must be groups of players who disagree about what is the actual strongest list. Yeah. Yes. So we actually have quite a varied meta and all of these lists are quite fun to play. The con that I can point out though is that some of these lists have just been around for too long. Yeah. So for those of you who've listened to the previous podcast, one of the things that we talked about 
was that we think no matter how good your meta is, if it becomes too stale and if it's around for so long, then people start getting tired of it and, and you you need to make a change. So this this is actually what I feel the current backlash against Scum Hunters is. I mean, I think a lot of us find Scum Hunters fun to play and the current meta is is fairly balanced. You could say some things are a little more common than others, but it, it's not a sweeping, you know, scum hunter party. Unless you go to certain certain countries, then it is. <laughs> but my my point is the the main problem is that it's just been there for so long that a lot of people are tired of it, and it may not be because specifically of balance or playstyle issues, just of fatigue. What do you guys think of that? That makes a lot of sense to me. I see a lot of people online kind of talking about what they want to play or what they want to try to play. A lot of people pick a list because it's what they want to play rather than because it's actually like meta in the terms of like best possible like tactics kind of a thing, right? Mm -hmm. There are some people that are just like, I'm a Vader player and that's what I do and that's what I love. And, and so they're going to play Vader unless like the tactics deem it completely untenable. Like Lothal kind of did that for a lot of people just because it was so big and so it's really hard. And then you sort of winnowed out the people who were like, no, I'm really a Vader player and I don't care. And the people who were like, I'm a Vader player when Vader does well. It's pretty nice that uh, it's pretty balanced. I know that people have become tired of something being the same. And I know, I think that's why there's a bit of a hunger for IACP as a thing, because it, they know that there's not any rotation in sight coming from FFG. Yeah. Just the idea that something will change, something will be different, definitely makes a big difference for people. A friend of mine describes a good game is a series of interesting decisions. And if you don't feel like you're making interesting decisions, or if you don't, if it's been a long time since you've made one, you're not really gaming anymore. You're, it's, it's more mechanical. And I think that the punishing pace that FFG set itself back in its, its heyday of continually setting new puzzles and problems in front of the player base to devour and try to crack and then leave them wanting more. One of the things I find most inspiring about the community and the people who are getting into the game every day and the work of the ICP, the community, is you're quite right, David, that in absence of anything changing, the meta will become inevitably stale, and it's it's actually survived some very stale periods in IA's history before. FFG is no longer doing the work of creating that sort of puzzle and that interest. The player base has stepped up in so many different ways, ICP being one of the shining examples, to continue to find ways to enjoy, explore, and, and challenge, and break apart, and put back together the game. I think it's because it truly is a, always has been a tremendous game experience, value in the box for what it gives and as you say i think it still contains a lot of riches in terms of what can be can be discovered yeah so i think that's a really good segue into what we want to talk about last is the future of ia and how the iacp progresses will develop this evolving meta and how do we make sure that as a community we keep the evolving meta fun for everyone <laughs> <laughs> i know that's that's your big point jess i know all about fun which is good because it's it's a game. One of the things that we've been, we've been having a lot of discussions about is exactly that. Actually, your podcast was a good kind of, hey, yeah, we should start talking about this some more. What is it? What is this going to look like? I, I'd say every six months, we have a conversation, I think, about our weak ways broken or like, do we need to change them? Uh, and usually, 
it's pretty much it's we're, we're kind of split in our opinions but we end up coming down to the community doesn't really want us to nerf too much of anything and every time we put out uh things saying should we nerf something usually the majority of people end up saying no keep it the way it is and we don't want to make any huge massive changes to things without having a larger community like sort of sense that that's what they like it'd be really easy for us to just say yeah we'll just make the game however we like but it's important for us to feel like the community is a part of it that's definitely been my response to most nerfs because i i guess most listeners probably know by now that i didn't think hunters really needed to be made weaker i think we just needed to somehow get people to stop playing them for a bit because of of the fatigue issue and all of this Mm -hmm. And this this is why I think things like rotations can be so powerful, right? Because it's not that they're not fun, right? When Jabba's Realm came out, we all had the most amazing time. No, Nobody, I think, should disagree with me for that. The problem is it was there for too long, yeah? So I almost feel like one possible solution is to make everybody pack away the weak ways and they might come back in a in a later season or something rather than you know changing them and trying to make them weak to the point where that people are encouraged to play something else but then you've got people that really like weak ways who still kind of want to play them and the the other people will still be tired of playing against weak ways even if they're a little bit weaker because they work more or less the same unless as alistair said you actually change the game so much that they actually feel different and that's going to be really tough the challenge that i i sit on the sidelines, you know, e- eating my peanuts and watching IACP working hard for my benefit. And I'm <laughs> in gratitude, not bending my arm to the plow. But I think that one of the hardest things that any company or group that tries to engage and entertain and again, set puzzles for a big gaming audience is that pushback to change. And that especially when you take any individual piece, we talked about people being Vader players who would feel very personally affronted or very defensive of, of changes if they didn't feel that it was viable in that way. And I come back to the Spectre Cell guy who just said, like, I'm not trying to make a point about the, the system. I just like playing the system. Some people like that were actually feeling really surprised showing up to an IA event. And there's nothing I want that somebody who's never been to an IA event come to it and have a good time. But if he painted up his Spectre Cell list lovingly and came to it and I rolled my eyes and said, I hate you for playing this, it was sort of the exact opposite I wanted to do to people. I think I come down on what needs to be set to improve the game is the reason I lean towards maps, the reason I lean towards changes that are actually a little bit more structural as opposed to any individual unit is a classic, you know, forest for trees situation. There's a level of trust, rightly or wrongly, that people have in factory-made settings for game figures and so ffg you know voice of god said boba had to be like this so figure it out figure out the bubble works like this when i hold my collection i just think of all that stuff that didn't really see a lot of play maps that didn't get played units that didn't get played and i think the way to make it fresh is you say yeah david is to give people a reason to not put away a unit because it has been taken away from them it's to to shine interest and attraction on a different part of their collection that makes them want to pick it out. Uh, it's classic carrot and stick, but I think anything that has a vibe of nerf is one thing, but if either certain rules or sectors that aren't being looked at, which I think ICP does well, are lifted up, that can be positive. People are creative. People like puzzles. I think you want to be giving people toys rather than taking them away. I think the ICP is doing great work. It has freshened up the meta a lot. These Testing League is great for all of those players that want to try out some wacky new things, shine light on some figures that haven't been played in a really long time. And I think the season format works to make sure that 
any meta that gets set up has kind of a end in sight. There's something new that's coming. IACP's real goal is to give us more problems to solve constantly, right? To keep everyone excited. And I guess that's why I just have this sense of kind of balancing everything together doesn't quite achieve that. And this this is because when you play IACP Testing League or when you play one of the IACP tournaments that, that we're running here, you see a ton of totally new lists. Everything is great. Mm. Super fun. But it is still possible to wander in to an IACP event and face off against Double Weekwe, Onar, Jabba, Greedo, you know, the, the basic mid-range scum hunter FFG list or, or IG or whatever. And it's still just as good. So you, you do still have the same things and they, they are still balanced and in the meta. It's just that the more fun we have, it's it's because people aren't playing them, not because they aren't viable. Mm-hmm. So I I, I yeah. think that's why I keep coming back to this thing where I don't point. I don't feel tuning their viability makes that that progress exactly. It's it's an interesting thought. Yes, yeah, so I was just thinking that's a really interesting way to approach changing the meta is not necessarily creating things that are stronger or making things that are weaker, but making things that are just exciting for people to play, making there to be incentives to just run more lists because people just want to play them. That's an interesting point. Yeah, and I think one of the things that we're trying to do for ICP, one, one of the initial thoughts was, you know, balancing figures that people haven't been able to play because they just don't work. So I think a great example was taking Fen and saying, like, nobody's playing this guy, like, ever. Why? Kind of cool. I mean, he's not from the, the movies, he's from the game. And so it was like, balance him out, and now... I see a significant amount of people deciding to to play him. And so I think a lot of what we're doing is looking at a lot of our conversations have been around what traits don't get played. So Hunter and Smuggler see a lot of play, but who designs a list around Guardian? That's been a question I've been asking myself for the last season or so. It's like, well, nobody does. So almost all of my lists, we came up with the new command cards for Guardians, have been how do I design around that? How do I make a list doing that? And that for me has been a, a ton of fun of a puzzle is to say, okay, so what, how can I make this work against other lists, you know, or the figure like Obi-Wan we made a few tweaks to him because he wasn't quite working, you know? And so it's like, how do you, how do you bring a, how do you build a list around Obi-Wan? Cause something like Tarot's map, Obi-Wan should be like the star on that map where you can like, control the barracks and get six points and no one can stop you, right? But you don't see everyone bringing him for that. Vader can stop you. There's one final point about that, the idea that some things need to be solid uh, so that you can be playing with other parts of it. One of the things about if we change everything about the game, uh, the bristles, the broom handle, the broom sort of changes itself. There needs to be certain things that even if they're frustrating people or if they're, you know, people are saying need to be changed that create a anchor around which other stuff can move. And it's interesting hearing you describe that because if you sorted guardians, you know, you might then need to focus on Wookiees. And if you focused on Wookiees, would you then need to work on every weapon? I, I hope that there isn't a sense of you needing to 
to serve the community by rendering a situation back to just the everybody happy where nobody can spot a gap in the in the system one of the things i think i'm always happy about when i'm surprised by somebody who brings a character that i've written off to the table was often because they did the work and found the way to make the solve the puzzle and make it work as opposed to it was just upgraded to a level where it became the obvious choice one of the things i've i've certainly liked about the icp events i've come to is i've i don't like having to ask my opponent how something works because it makes me feel like i'm not practiced enough for the game but i do love seeing people get excited and explain well i thought this interaction would work well with this and you know that's the work they've done the the, the player themselves come up with so some things that look bad or underpowered or uncomfortable are just waiting for a player to crack and figure out hang on it's terrible in this context but do it here and it's right and that's sort of that's created many of my favorite stories about breaking and discovering the meta in this in this part of the world yeah i think that's the hardest type of problem solving for any company or or any group of people to try to create because so much of it is is unforeseen right yeah if we have anything to enjoy now is that we can trust a community that's lasted this long we can trust a community that's actually gone through some really as i said some, some pretty there's been more than one drought of creativity and frustration and i think that i could have called ia to go the way of many other games even some higher profile ones many times by now and the fact that it has endured is actually that something keeps bringing people back to their their lists and their their cards and their figures every built on hope effort is sort of built on enthusiasm and uh, the player base and I think it's I'm so thrilled that it's still delivering and people are still thinking about it and, and I think that's a great energy to that, that I'm sure will be around when FFG decides what the next version of making money off this property that they have in mind <laughs> I know they've got one <laughs> we'll see <laughs> alright any final thoughts or sneak peeks Derek that you can give Ooh. us from IACP <laughs> yeah we've been working real hard on season 4 stuff uh, sneak peeks wise I think look to see some new new figures that haven't been around. That's definitely what we've been working on designing. We're still working on fixing up some old ones, but I know one of the things that people felt about changing metas and stuff was it was like, oh, I, I want a new figure. I want something new to explore. So like, you know, when we were figuring out who Spectre Cell and Thrawn and Hondo and Lothcast and all that stuff were before it got all oppressive with Spectre Cell, it was like, that was still really exciting and people were really happy about it. And that every time there's a new release, that's kind of the, the thought process. So I wasn't a part of the design for it. It was just before I came on the steering committee, but I was super excited about figuring out the scout troopers. That was a lot of fun to try to figure out something brand new and to see if we could make it work. And I think we've got it about right. We're hoping we have anyways. And so we've got a few new things. Maybe I'll drop that, uh, expect some stuff from the Mandalorian. Ooh-hoo! That should be coming pretty soon in the next little bit. We're busy playtesting uh, different units and stuff like that as a as a team so that what we're putting on the table we're trying to make sure it's not uh completely busted and so that when people play test it they can have an idea of what that it's got a decent balance to it at least yeah amazing thank you so much derek for coming on and thank you alistair for coming on and having this really in-depth discussion always a pleasure is there any kind of closing statements you want to make i guess the only thing we didn't talk about was you know that these communities we talked about these metas we talked about whether they're in america or here a lot of them did center around game stores and uh, it's probably obvious to say those those stores are gonna 
to be facing a really, really uh, strange new world if and when we're all able to come back. Um, if yeah. you're part of this, you know, community and you like this this game, it's likely that you've had some really positive interactions with some of those stores. And I think that uh, I guess it's just a bit of a shout out to them to say we're still thinking of them. And if you are interested in the game and you, you know, when things turn around, uh, I'd try to spread that love to sort of offering that support back to those stores. They're they're a big part of for me what makes I so great. Yeah, great point, Alistair. Support your local game store, and we're gonna continue to run some more events so people have a place to play when there's no stores to go to. Indeed. All right, thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.